This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas and experience, and just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Krista Johnson, who is the Chief Analytics Officer at Health First. So Krista, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Kyle. Uh, the pleasure is all ours, Krista. So um, where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a, uh, I guess, brief uh, introduction into their background and journey up until this point, if uh, if you'd be so kind. Sure, I'm happy to. I guess in relevance to this call, I, I joined Health First uh, in October of 2020, right in the middle of COVID. Uh, it so happens I didn't really see hardly anybody in person for the first year here at Health First. <laughs> Uh, but prior to that, I was 27 years data analytics consulting across a number of different companies. Uh, I started out in 93 uh, with Pricewaterhouse and a group called Management Analytics. So back in 93, I was actually on a team that, that focused in analytics. Uh, and we did so, was doing a lot of work for the US Postal Service, trying to improve the efficiency of their operations. Uh, we merged in 98, became PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, and then in 2001, we were sold after the Enron scandal, were sold to IBM. So I, I joined IBM at that point. And across PwC and IBM, I was primarily doing supply chain analytics. So think of typically operations research. Most of that was for the US Postal Service as they tried to significantly cut their costs after the mail volumes plummeted after uh, after 9-11. Uh, and so I did a lot of work there. And then around 2007, in that time frame, as we as I was part of IBM, uh, where really, uh, for me, it was a really exciting time for me. I, IBM had a group of about 300 PhDs in math. I, I think at the time it was the largest private math department in, in the world. Uh, and they, they were doing a lot of things internally and filing patents with, with math you know, things. And I got a chance to start to in, involve them in some of our client work. And it was, it was those relationships that I built involving some of our math department and IBM research up in New York uh, with some of our client work that kind of led to, in 2007, IBM asked me to lead advanced analytics and optimization consulting in the North America across all the various industries. Uh, and I did that for five years. It was great. I learned so much. It, it was kind of hard to believe how much I learned. Uh, from industry to industry, it was. Yeah, we can get into the details later if you're if you're interested. But around 2012, 2013, I, I decided that I really wanted to start to focus more in a particular industry, and I, I had an opportunity to to make a switch and get back into the partnership type model from a consulting standpoint through Ernst and Young. And so I joined Ernst and Young in 2013, and there I I really focused on driving data and analytics consulting services in the healthcare industry. And I did that over the course of the next seven, seven years. 
Uh, and the reason I started looking again to make a, another switch is one, I'd been doing consulting for 27 years. Uh, that's probably, for those of you who have done consulting, you, you might know that uh, it's, it's a lot. Uh, but two, the, the nature of my work was changing. And what was changing it was that most of my clients were realizing that analytics, specifically advanced analytics, needed to be a core competency of their own. And so because of that, I was doing less of the actual analytics and more of the analytics, business strategy, and organizational strategies for analytics. And that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I, and I really did want to make a difference in healthcare. So I, I decided to, to start looking. And my number one rule was I was only going to look for companies that were in the DC area, the Washington DC area, uh, which is where I live because I was tired of traveling after consulting for so long. And the headhunter I was working for said, yeah, I understand that, Krister, but given what you want to accomplish, uh, we think health, we should talk to health first. And it was match made in heaven. I had to go ahead and, and break my rule uh, and, and join health first as their chief analytics officer a couple of years ago. Nice, nice. We're looking forward to kind of unpacking some of that experience, Krista. I guess before we do that, give us a little bit of insight into Health First as an organization and, you know, purpose, mission, what, what you guys stand for, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. It's a big part of why I actually joined is, so I'll give you that background. So they are, we are, we, I don't know why I said they, we are a unique company in the sense that we are a healthcare insurance payer, uh, for those of you outside the US, a payer's insurance, essentially an insurance company who is essentially created and sponsored slash owned by the major hospital systems in New York City. So we primarily serve New York City residents. There's other people outside of New York City, but all within New York. And, and we were formed back in 93, mainly so that those hospital systems could have, could work with an insurance company that could help them deliver care efficiently and effectively to the Medicaid population, which uh, is essentially the population, which is around or slightly above the, the poverty level and the state of, of New York through the federal government, CMS actually pay uh, some of their, uh, they pay their, they provide their healthcare. And so that's why we were created. Over, we've grown significantly over the years. Uh, we now are unique in the sense that we operate as a not-for-profit and almost all of the work that we do is on a value-based care arrangement situation where we are working, trying to keep deliver healthcare in a way that actually is a, is efficient and cost efficient. And then anything we're, since we're not for profit, anything that we make over and above what we take in from the state in this case, or from the federal government in the case of Medicare, we, we now provide Medicare services as well, uh, goes right back into our sponsors um, books uh, because they're the, again, they're our sponsors as hospital systems. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, probably a good point in time. So I think obviously I mentioned to you when we first spoke, we've got over 13,000 listeners in 116 different countries. Now I'm very fortunate. I've lived in the US on two separate occasions and my eldest son was born in New York City. Um, so I know very well about the uh, <laughs> the, insurance, the insurance schemes and having, you know, and several, you know, ACL surgeries when I was over in, uh, in the States playing soccer on a scholarship, etc. So very well aware of the complexities around it. Just, uh, and again, I know, it, I know it is complex, but just give us, you know, our listeners that aren't as familiar with that way of kind of operating give them just a high level overview of how the healthcare system currently works and I guess where your organization sits in that kind of value chain. Yeah. So 
Uh, for anybody outside the U.S., it is complicated. So <laughs> we'll, we'll start there. Uh, no matter what you think about it, it's more complicated than you probably think. The I think the easiest place to start to understand healthcare in America is that whereas in most other countries, the government is primarily responsible for providing the monetarily speaking the the healthcare. In the U.S., we rely on all of our employers predominantly. Uh, and so the system is based on any employer, any large company, then pays m- money to an insurance provider, uh, which is generally a either a public or a private for-profit company. In many cases, we are not, but there's others. Most of them are. Uh, and then they contract with all the independent doctors and hospital systems to then deliver care. And so that creates a lot of complexity. Uh, and I won't get into all of that at the moment. I'm happy to if, if you think it, it makes sense. But I want to skip to when you've, when you've heard of the Affordable Care Act that, that was passed in the beginning of the last decade. Um, what that did is expanded the amount of insurance that would be provided from the government. Now, the, the federal government really only directly pays to for people in Medicare. So predominantly people that are over 65 years of age. That's that's Medicare. The government, from a federal standpoint, takes care of that. Uh, but the federal government also provides money to the states uh, for people who are, for a while, it was about people who are 140% uh, or below the federal poverty line. Uh, the state would provide that health care. Uh, and that that is increasing uh, next year, by the way. Uh, but we won't get into those details. And so every state handles it differently, 50 states. Uh, and so that's that's what kind of creates that complexity. And then within Medicare and Medicaid, you have companies like us that actually help on behalf of the state government or on behalf of the federal government. They actually help manage that insurance plan. And we have our own relationships and agreements with all the doctors. Uh, and those agreements across all the different insurance companies that I just mentioned, uh, they're all, they all can be different. Uh, and so there's increasingly focus. And I'll, I won't get into all the recent regulations because it can make your head spin when you start thinking and all that. But uh, how's that, Kyle, at a, at a real yes. high level? Was that a, was that a decent high level? Uh, yeah, no, that's, that, that's perfect. Yeah. Because I guess there'll be some people sat here, right? And, you know, everyone... We've all seen the uh, the movies, right? So they'll have some understanding that the U.S. healthcare system is slightly different. But um, yeah, it may have confused some people. Be thinking like insurance, healthcare, like what's what's going on? So, um, but yeah, that's that's perfect. So, in terms of your role, then, obviously, keen to dig into what you're up to from a kind of advanced analytics perspective that that helps you in your role. But obviously, you've been brought in there as the chief analytics officer, kind of. What was the reason for that? You know, what what have you been tasked with achieving? What you you know, what you're there to deliver, essentially? Yeah, uh, happy to answer that question. So, in my initial discussions with Health First, uh, where they were at the time, they had started to started to engage in some data science, building machine learnings. They had just started the process of, in some cases, embedding machine learning algorithms into their operational systems to drive prioritized and personalized interactions with with our members. But they realized that in order to really impact the health of New Yorkers, uh, to really start to more effectively and efficiently manage all of our operations, they needed to step up the game from an analytics perspective. And so to a large extent, when I started, there were we, the our analytics team and the, 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 
level at which we were using analytics, were, I, would be, I would define it as mostly data visualization in tools like Tableau, ClickView, and things like that. And, and what they asked me to do and the reason they created this role was to say, continue to do that when necessary. That's never going to go away. But, but how do we really think about scaling our ability uh, to not only develop, but then also operationalize and maintain a set of machine learning algorithms, which will increasingly allow us to get a very near real-time full picture about what's going on in each of our members' lives and then generate the insights to figure out, well, what actions can we take to help our members be healthier uh, or improve their customer service uh, or improve the efficiency of how we're helping the providers in our network, the providers that we work with, deliver that care uh, to our members. And we can go into a lot of detail. One of the areas we're specifically working on right now is, especially in New York, and this happens in a lot of big cities in the U.S., for the underserved, the Medicaid, the Medicare population, it can sometimes be very challenging to get access to healthcare, just to get an appointment. And so we're, we're really thinking carefully through how we can leverage machine learning to improve those insights, maybe help provide some guidance as to where there is some availability to get an appointment. Uh, and we would like to, through some of our digital strategies outside of analytics, just is providing digital platforms, we would like to, at some point in the future, really start to help schedule appointments. Uh, today, the, we do that in the few cases where we're scheduling appointments. We just have somebody pick up a phone and we're calling doctors. Um, so you know, by the time we actually are thinking about being able to digitally have access to all of our doctors and, and provider schedules, that, that's, that's still a little bit far away. Uh, but those are just examples of some of the things that we're doing. So you know, for me, our mission from an analytics perspective is I'm trying to provide the insights that are needed to make New Yorkers live happier and healthier lives. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, and, and that's that's really my job. And so across all of our organization, I'm, I'm working with a lot of different stakeholders who do a lot of different things. And we're trying to figure out, you might've heard Kyle in the past, people say the key to getting value out of analytics is asking the right question. I have found over the years that actually that's not good enough. It'll be okay. You'll add some value. But to really add value, it's less about asking the right question because one question begets another question and you could just spend a little bit. And so for, for me, what we are doing is from an analytics perspective with all our stakeholders is trying to figure out what are the decisions you need to make on a daily basis, hour to hour, day to day, week to week, quarterly, and, and really start to figure out to make that decision, what are the insights, not just the content of those insights, but also the timing from when when you have visibility into some data about what's happening to a member to when you need to make that decision. And we're trying to shrink that time down as much as we can so that we can be more responsive to our members and leverage this wide range of data that we have available to our about what's happening to our members' healthcare and in their lives in general. Yep. Yep. That makes perfect sense. I guess what you started to creep into there, what sounded like an element of personalization, right? And I guess, you know, as a an entire population in the data and analytics industry, you know, we were constantly talking about trying to get down to that one-to-one and you know, we, we're having that debate in terms of is that possible is that the right thing to do um do we get the right amount of value out of that is it cost effective etc cetera, etc cetera. but i guess just give me your steer in terms of what personalization means 
from a healthcare perspective and why that's so important in the role that your organization plays in that healthcare, you know, value chain? Yeah. Um, the easiest way for me to start is, is by this notion of a cohort. So in healthcare, a lot of the research in healthcare in terms of figuring out what's the best way to treat a particular disease or a condition, a lot of that research is done in cohorts. Clinical trials, there's cohorts, the cohorts of people that have meet certain characteristics. Uh, and that'll always, the use of cohorts, and by cohort, let's just say uh, diabetics with food insecurity or uh, or younger pregnant women. or it, So these are examples of cohorts. And so there's a lot of research done and a lot of value created there. But from a from our perspective, that's going to continue. What, what we're trying to do is really think, all right, if we have all these insights, all this work within the healthcare industry, smart, really intelligent doctors and researchers figure out the best way to treat, that's fine. But for any given individual, uh, they have a lot going on. They may have multiple conditions or comorbidities. Uh, and so we as, a, as an insurance company are trying to leverage all that insights to figure out, all right, we're, we're pulling insights from all this research at, in these different groups of people and cohorts. But ultimately, when we decide to do something, uh, we actually, at that point, we're dealing with a cohort of one. And so we use, we're using this strategy called a cohort of one to really drive our personalization. Uh, and so what that ultimately will mean, if, if, I, if I look a couple of years out, is that every, we're going to start on a weekly basis, by the way, instead of daily. So every week for each of our members, we will be running hundreds of different of machine learning predictive models to figure out what is the next best action for that member. The vast majority of the time, the next best action will be do nothing. They're fine. Uh, but what we're trying to figure out is when are those right moments in time where it actually makes a difference to go reach out and intervene. And the real interesting thing as we go forward is that typically in the past, our main channel was either in person. We have some field offices around where we act people can actually go see us in person. Uh, we've also have a call center so they can talk to us. We've had a website for a long time. We now have obviously a mobile application. So there's a lot of different channels, both digital and analog and in person that, that we've been using to in, interact with our members to, to help them. The real key thing, though, and I, I think this is this is one of the most exciting things that I think we're working on is we're we're working with a wholly owned subsidiary uh, who is providing a platform to allow us and other payers to interact more directly uh, with our providers in a digital way, both receiving data from them and actually giving them insights. And so I'm really excited as we start to talk about personalization. Uh, to really think about how we can you treat the providers as another channel with which to provide some personalized care. And, and what we mean by that is providing some relevant insights to the doctor through their electronic health record system or their workflow. And many of our providers, they use Epic and Cerner, but there's, there's others. And how, how we can actually provide those insights in real time. We, we're already doing some stuff where we, when they're meeting with the patient, we could show where they might have some healthcare gaps and just remind that doctor to ask of some other things that might not be directly related to uh, the question that the, the patient or the member is asking them at that time. So um, that's at, at a high level, that's, that's personalization. If I, if I try to give you an example, one of the things I've done with a previous client 
Uh, one of the things that we and other insurance companies provide is something called care management. So for people with a particular condition, we can actually help them guide them through uh, use the, their utilization of the healthcare network and, and give them advice along the way as it relates to their condition. Mm. And at this previous client, they had a tough time getting people with these whatever condition, a chronic condition, to engage in their care management program. And so what we actually looked at creating this time sequence customer journey database where we looked at across a lot of different sources. So their claims, their healthcare records, the, 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 any web interactions, any phone conversations, and we sequenced that all out. And then we would layer in when that call went out in the past, when they were actually doing the outgoing call. And what we found is, as just one example, if you were to time the outgoing call to ask somebody to engage in this care management program, and that call happened within one to two weeks after their doctor visit with that specialist who treats that or, or their, their doctor, it was an 800% higher probability that they were going to engage in care management. Wow. And so when we say personalization, it absolutely is the cohort of one, as I've been explaining. But for me, the key element is how do we reduce the time when this is the optimal moment to go take an action and actually be able to deliver that with relevant personalized content that shows the member that you really understand what's going on in their life. That for us, that's ultimately what personalization means. Mm, yeah, makes perfect sense. I guess in terms of the actual tangibles, then day to day or week to week, as as, as you mentioned, sounds like you're directly speaking to and working with the the, the customer, right? Who's going to receive that care as well as maybe the providers and et cetera, et cetera. What type of channels is that being kind of expressed through? How does that work day to day? Yeah. So we, we have a mobile app. Uh, it doesn't have all of the functionality we'd probably envision that we're going to have in the future. So we're working on those, those things. Uh, but certainly one of the you know, big functionalities is they need, they need to find a doctor. And so I'll just give you one example. One of the things we're working on right now is, member asks us to provide them a doctor. I mean, to a large extent, we just give them access to a directory today. Uh, we, we do. We have a couple of, I would say, very simple routines that can kind of do a simple look at geography uh, and, and maybe sort it down to, to a little extent. But we think that one of the key elements of solving the access problem, because I think all if you look at the New York healthcare market, there, there is just simply a, an issue with getting access to care. Like if you look at all the CAP surveys and, and other quality surveys, you'll see that that's an issue across the board. And so what we're really thinking about how we can impact helping our members get access to the care they need, both with primary care physicians, specialists, dentists, dentists is another area where it's sometimes tough to get care. We are trying to leverage some machine learning techniques that look at all aspects of the doctors that we have in our network, quality, cost, access, uh, a wide variety of different aspects, and, and most importantly, geography. So we're working with, with Google Maps on an API right now to really get a better sense of for every member to every doctor. If you really factor in transit times on the subway and, and the buses, how far are these doctors away? And we are going to try to actually maybe instead of just giving them access to a long list of doctors for them to sort through, we're going to maybe call that list down a little bit and say, hey, 
here are some doctors that they, they seem like they have some availability. Uh, we're, we're working with that. Uh, they are closer to you than this existing doctor you're working with. Uh, and we think that on the whole, they do. They seem to be doing a really good job with our members, keeping them happy. Uh, we have some after-visit surveys that we do of our members to see how the doctors are performing. We have information about overall health quality measures and, and things like that. And so that's that's just one area as an example of where we're trying to, that's a channel in which customers are either coming to us via the phone or through the web or through the mobile app to get some insight as to I'm trying to find a doctor. And so we're thinking very carefully about how we can leverage some machine learning techniques to help make it easier. Because doing a search, on, you, I don't know if you've ever, how it is in, in the UK, Kyle, but if, you know, when you're searching for a doctor and you get a list of 30 doctors, <laughs> how, the, how the heck are you going to supposed to choose, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, and we're not alone in this. I know a lot of other healthcare insurance companies in the, uh, in the US are, are doing this. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I guess keen to jump into the piece around um, the whole kind of health equity piece that you're obviously very passionate about. And and obviously, as I said, firsthand living in the States previously a couple of times, I know that there's a, there's a challenge around that, right? With uh, maybe some demographics not being able to afford the appropriate healthcare. And obviously that must cause a whole host of endless issues, but seems like a almost like a, a perfect use case for you and your team to kind of even take this a bit further, you know, when you're kind of starting to suggest certain kind of doctor's facilities, for example. So um, just talk us through health equity in terms of what you mean by that, why it's important, and I guess what you're doing to kind of combat some of those issues. Yeah, uh, I'm happy to. There, there are a lot of different elements to health equity. When people hear that word, some of the things that come to mind are social determinants of health around food, housing, transportation. Uh, so there's a lot involved there. Uh, I, as I stated earlier, I, I tend to really focus on health equities about access to care. Uh, and so when you think of the social determinants of health around just specifically transportation, right? We and others uh, work with transportation providers to, to help get some of our members to a doctor appointment, right? We have plenty of stories where we've actually worked and been on the phone. Our, our people have been on the phone with cab drivers. It's like, there's, I'm here to pick them up, but I can't find them when they would get the member on the phone. Like there's plenty of examples like that. Uh, and so that that's at a high level, that's what health equity is. But I, I, I go back to, um, there's also the issue of race, ethnicity, and things like that. So we're, we're spending a lot of time right now just making sure it, from, a, from, a, from a race and ethnicity standpoint, are there any systemic issues that we have that are affecting health equity? Uh, and surprisingly enough for me, uh, since I've been in this job the last two years, one of the most challenging things we have is people, we, we and, and other organizations don't have as accurate information about our members' race and ethnicity as you might think. There are a lot of members that don't actually share that information. And when we look at, for particular members, there's a lot of members that have contradictory race and ethnicity data if you look across various different sources. And so I, because of that, the issue, I, I have taken the approach where, as an example, race and ethnicity is one of many variables uh, in complex models that we are building to be able to get to, we want to, we have about a little over 1.7 million members and I'm trying to address health equity 
by having the analytical horsepower to figure out what each of our 1.7 million members needs. That's, that is our strategy going forward. We're trying to leverage some of the personalized insights and, and digital interaction and other interactions that we've been talking about to address health equity by getting really smart at the cohort of one or that individual level to help better figure out what each member needs. Um, and and that, that's really important for us because I think it allows us to, to take an objective view. We can start to personalize or customize the interventions and the things that we're doing while still taking into account some of the higher level societal things around geographic areas, income levels, uh, food deserts, transportation issues, et cetera. Um, and, and that's really for, for us how, how we see health equity. Mm, yeah, that's really, uh, really interesting. I, I guess without wanting to jump too much into the technical detail, um, because that that kind of conversation wouldn't last very long at all, Christa, I'll be honest, but um, just kind of t- <laughs> talk to I don't believe you. I, I think you did. <laughs> Um, but just talk, just talk to us about kind of the, I guess, in, in terms of, you know, this this great kind of scaling personalization by using machine learning. Just, just talk us through, and again, we don't want you to give away all your trade secrets, but just talk us through how you're actually doing that, what the day-to-day looks like for the analytical, um, you know, the analytics team in the business to kind of get to some of these use cases and really make a, an impact. Yeah. Uh, well, it starts, honestly, with... Uh, we've really been expanding our data science team. So we've more than doubled our data science team in the last four months. Interestingly enough, uh, in, 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 in doing that, we ended up leveraging three separate companies that are based in London. I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It, so, so apparently, uh, so talent agencies in London are really good at finding data scientists in the U.S. I don't really understand it, but it, it, it helped us quite a bit. Um, and so we're, con- we're we are... If, if you think of the term that's that you you may have heard of or others is machine learning operations or ML ops, and yep. so we're really focused on this. We, we worked with a partner to help us really form our ML ops strategy for going forward. And there's a lot of different components of it. The, the easiest way to describe it is that we in our platform, obviously we have a data platform. We've got to make sure that there's a data platform that provides the data for a lot of production systems. When we're talking about analytics, especially when we're building models, we need the data a little somewhere else because we don't want to really slow down our production systems. We want to process that data in another platform. Everything we do is on the cloud. We happen to use AWS. And so we're thinking about how we build those models efficiently. Uh, And every machine learning model has, as you know, tons of different hundreds of different features. And so we actually have, we work with a company that called closedloop.ai that has created a feature library that we use. And that feature library means that all of our data scientists can share features that they create and use them in their models. And, and that sits mm-hmm. on a cloud platform. Uh, we, we then can actually build those models. And we have up until now, uh, we've built, I would say, a little bit of a Band-Aid solution for those models to run and populate a table that's in a public place in our cloud that other systems can then go pull from and then incorporate them into their their operational system. The the easiest way to think about it is we've got a system for anybody who's 
prescription is about to expire and our predictive model says that they're likely not to fill that prescription, but we want them to fill that prescription because they're healthier if they adhere to the prescription that the doctor gave them. And so we write that to the table, that system that drives and prioritizes who are, we have a MedConnect team that's calling all these members. We are prioritizing who and when they call people based on that machine learning algorithm. We just write that to a table. Now, what we're trying to do going forward from an MLOps perspective is we can't just be populating results to a table because going forward, especially if we start to share predictive insights with doctors, we're going to need to focus on the explainability of the results, not just provide the results. Because if, if, if let's say we decide to share, I'm not saying we're doing this, but let's say we decide to share with some of our doctors in the system, if they're meeting with a member and we have a predictive model that says this person is likely not to adhere to whatever drug you prescribe them we're thinking it may be beneficial to share that with that doctor at some point. Well, if you do that, uh, for, if a doctor's going to take, I mean, you ha- first of all, you, you can't be sending doctors hundreds and hundreds of different predictive results. So you got to have some ensemble model or model that sits on top to prioritize what they actually see. But when they see it, it's got to be explainable. They, you have to be able to show them why that result is what it is. And, and you can't show them all the hundreds of different features that led to that prediction. You've got to have a way to really figure out, all right, these are the important features of what's relevant to a doctor. These are what I'm going to surface. And by the way, it may not just be what the the prediction is today. You may want to show that doctor how that prediction for that member changed over the last five months so they could see that, oh, this thing happened right here. That's when the prediction, oh, that makes sense. So there's a there's a timing element to how we explain our models that were actually requires some pretty complex uh, visualization. And our partner closed loop is, has excelled in that area. That's one of the, they've actually, they won a CMS center for Medicaid and Medicare services challenge against a lot of big companies. They won that challenge in large part based on their ability to provide predictive analytics around healthcare that are explainable to the, the medical industry. So I'm going a little bit off topic here. I apologize, but you hit a You hit a chord with me. This is not thing I'm passionate about Kyle, but, um, so when you you tie it all together, there's a lot that has to happen from a build the models, run the models on a regular basis, keep track of all the results, how those results for each individual member changes over time. And then how do I then serve both visualization tools that through which providers might be actually consuming this or our care manager, our own care managers or anybody else in an organization may be consuming it, how to provide that visualization so they understand not just what any predictive result is, but how that result for each member changed over time and what happened in the underlying data that caused those things to change. And so you can't do that by just building a model and writing the results to a table. Uh, It it takes a little bit more integration. And so we're working with uh, a lot of different vendors right now on on trying to make that uh, happen. Uh, And and we're just starting, we're starting that process, but we do see again in in the future where, uh, we have a, a way to build the models that make it easy for us to then operationalize it in our overall platform through which a, if you think of it almost as a, as a product that we're creating that other systems within Health First can then consume from there. Uh, and then we call them package business components is, is what we call them or PBCs. 
Uh, if you, you may, people may have heard that concept from Gartner, it's a, it's a Gartner concept that we like and use. Uh, and then from there, then other systems can then consume it. And then that's the MLOps software that we're creating is actually going to then monitor the effectiveness and the accuracy of those models over time. It'll automatically notify us if there's any drift in the models, and we, you know, need to reformat the, and rebuild the coefficients and, and things like that. So I am a little bit worried that I went pretty far deep in there, but as, as, I, as you know, Kyle, I get, I get pretty jazzed up about this stuff. No, it's absolutely perfect. I guess I'm, I'm sat here just kind of, I guess the, 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 the thing that comes straight to mind, Krista, then here is, Obviously, with so much going on, there's so much potential value to be kind of driven out, out of all of this stuff. Where and how do you prioritize? You know, how, how, how do you prioritize, right, this is the starting point, and then these are the things that we need to kind of kick on and optimize further. How, how do you go through? What kind of exercise do, do, do you go through to get to that point? Yeah, so the simplest way to answer that today is, uh, well, if I want to be a little bit crass, it's the squeaky wheel <laughs> gets, the, gets the grease, uh, but that's not really true. We, we from an analytics perspective, uh, we have about 90 people in our analytics team, including all of our data scientists, and we are organized where we have some, some couple competency teams around data visualization, data management, and then data science. But we have stakeholder teams that are fo focused and organized on serving various stakeholders across our organization. And it's really up to the leaders of those teams work in collaboration with myself to figure out how we prioritize what we do from an analytics perspective. But what we do from an analytics perspective is very much driven from our stakeholders' priorities. And so we were pretty um, serious about leveraging scaled agile. I'm sure from a development standpoint, we are actually, one of the things we did when I first got here is we made sure that our analytics team was on the same sprint and PI planning schedule as our IT group, because so much of what we do when we want to actually deploy it is going to be contingent upon working with IT. And so that was one thing we did. And we have a, what's called a program increment or a PI planning process. That's a quarterly process and we plan three week sprints. And so we have these meetings with our stakeholder teams to figure out what, here's what we're planning for the next three months. Give us your feedback. Uh, and then here's how we're going to break it out into three week sprints and we're going to deliver on those sprints. And so we, we've really uh, over the last year or two uh, done a much better job of prioritizing my mind because we actually are engaging not just the individual stakeholder teams, but we come together across all the various IT and our analytics teams to really see here's what we're doing overall. How do we get that feedback? And all that feedback ties back to achieving our our, our main corporate objectives. I think you know from our CEO Pat Pat Wong on down, we do a pretty good job of making clear what our high level business objectives are. And so we, it makes it a little bit easier for us to tie what we're doing from an IT and analytics perspective right back to those high-level business objectives. But in the future, what, what I'm interested in, in trying to do is I, I want to, to build some, well, I'll tie back to this notion of customer lifetime value. Uh, we don't really use customer lifetime value today, but going forward, we would like to have a more holistic and automated way to start suggesting when priorities should change in a data-driven way. 
just by the name of your podcast. I think I reversed it's driven by data is, is your podcast. <laughs> um, and so what we're thinking about right now is if you think of the, the overall customer lifetime value, both, both from an individual customer and then all your customers as a whole, it, it really depends on three main concepts. It's you got cost to serve them, the revenue that you get from them, and then there's this retention element. How long can you keep them? And so we have a lot of different predictive models today that touch those different areas, but we don't bring them all together to really see here is something that changed in the environment uh, in New York that is going to change our prospect of retention for a group of people or an individual person or or revenue and cost. And so we are really working to build those higher level models where instead of just relying on seeing a financial report and then reacting to that financial report, we want to actually start to have Every week or every month, we're running predictive models that predict those variables. And when we see a difference between the prediction and actuals, or better yet, when we see a difference in our prediction, because our model actually says, hey, this one, this one of about 200 different variables that's looking at revenue, it changed. Um, we need to go take an action. And we're starting to see examples where sometimes we have an underlying feature uh, that it might change. And when it changes, it has a positive impact on revenue, but at the same time, it may have, there's another feature that changes that has a negative uh, impact on it. And if you're just looking at the overall result, you wouldn't think anything happened, but we're at that level trying to figure out, well, wait a second. Yes. The, our overall prediction hasn't changed, but those two features changed, changed quite a bit. And maybe that changes how we actually handle that. So, I mean, we're, we're really trying to get to that level where we could provide greater uh, holistic and automated insights to drive some of the prioritization. But as I've said, we're not there yet. And so today we really rely on a scaled, ad, scaled agile process where we work directly with our stakeholders, figuring out what they want to achieve uh, and formulating and prioritizing our work in that way. Mm. Yep. Yep. All of that makes um makes perfect sense so i'm conscious of time christy but i've got a couple of kind of final questions to, to kind of throw at you here so i guess in terms of the whole value add component to this right because i guess in you know in more general commercial businesses you know the the, the value added by a data analytics capability is you know increasing profit right or reduction in cost or mitigating risk or improving operational efficiencies and i know that all of them metrics would still in some way shape or form be there for you but as a not-for-profit the value add is slightly different right so i guess how how do you go about identifying and putting tangible metrics on the value that you and your team add to your organization yeah it it can be hard. It's specifically hard in the areas where we are building uh, dashboards and, and visualization tools and things where it's it's not necessarily tied to specific decisions. But I think more and more uh, we have this notion of uh, leading indicators. So if we have a new program, uh, say our new care management programs focused on or we're focused on some diabetes, uh, the first step is we know in order to have an impact, we have to get people to engage. So let's actually carefully measure the rate of engagement that we're getting uh, from the calls that we're making. So it starts there. So we know if we're, we have a, a certain budget in our business case for any initiative like that, where we know, all right, we're going to assume this rate of engagement. Are we, are we seeing that? And so early on, we can, we can react and, and address to that. 
it takes a little bit longer to see if we're taking these actions to help people be healthier, uh, to maybe change their diet or other information like that. It takes a little bit longer before we start seeing the impacts on medical costs. A lot of what we do as a healthcare insurance company is we try to take actions to make people healthier, which in the long run will reduce overall healthcare costs in general. Um, and we never take, you know, obviously we're, we're perfectly happy to increase cost if it's going to make the people healthier. I mean, that, 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 I mean, that is worth saying. I think some people gloss over that, but that is really important. But in the long run, if you're making people happier, you're going to reduce costs. Um, on the on the revenue side for us, right? Well, there's a whole bunch of metrics around customer satisfaction, right? We we know that if satisfaction of members goes down, uh, attrition is going to go up. We know that if we can get members to stick with us beyond the first year, there's a high probability that they're going to stay with us longer. And so there's a whole bunch of things that we do where there's, I would say, underlying metrics that we really drive to influence those metrics, but they don't necessarily tie to a, to a dollar. Um, I haven't mentioned yet, we, because we are, a lot of our funding, most of all of our funding comes from state government or the federal government. Uh, we have quite a bit of regulation around quality metrics that we have to meet. And so for us, uh, it is quite easy in a lot of cases to tie revenue coming from the government to our ability to meet certain quality metrics that the government has laid out for us. Uh, customer satisfaction, believe it or not, or customer service levels is, is a component of that uh, through our CAPS surveys. For those of you in the U.S., you'll know what CAPS surveys are. For those outside the U.S., I'm not going to explain it. Um, and we have a lot of other quality metrics around, did they did these women of a certain age get their breast cancer screening? You know, did this person get their colonoscopy? There's a whole bunch of just very easy, simple metrics that we monitor which we know we can tie back to the overall health and the uh, lower costs of, in the long run of the medical services that they're receiving. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is <laughs> we have this concept where we want our members to lead healthier, happier lives. And so the, the healthy is really about those medical health-related metrics that we're trying to improve. For a diabetic, it, maybe we want to lower their A1C level, right? That's that's a lot of companies are working on that. Uh, by the way, it's not the A1C is not the end-all be-all for diabetes, but I, I will spare going into that uh, wormhole. Um, it's it's generally good to lower it. On the, on the happy side, it, it's really about are we providing good customer service? Is that reflected in the surveys that we provide? Are these members happy? How does it relate to retention? Uh, so there's a whole bunch of things that we do there. And, and that's really how we we look at it. Happy, we just want our members to live happier, healthier lives. And we've got a, a myriad and complex set of metrics, high level and lower level metrics that we follow and we use and we tr try to provide insights to understand what's driving when it changes and then also help give us some advance or proactive insights to influence in positive directions along the way. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That makes. Um... That makes sense. I mean, it's so much, so so interesting, right? So much stuff there, and it's um, it's kind of ironic and completely the opposite of most other businesses, right? You know, your 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 organization really, um, if you're doing your job properly, you want to see your customers less often, right? <laughs> right? You know, it's uh, it's the exact opposite way around, which is um, an interesting way to look at things. So, last question from me then, Krista, because I know you've got a, a busy afternoon, I'm sure, um. Obviously, for you, this... Kyle, take as long as you want. <laughs> well, so look, 
digital transformation, right? I, I think it's pretty well acknowledged, you know, the last couple of years through the pandemic, that's, you know, expedited a lot of them processes for many businesses. Um, I think on a personal level, and I'm not too sure, obviously, what it's like in the US, but I think we've we've seen some drastic improvements in our healthcare system over here by it going more digital. So I wanted, you know, wanted to get your steer on what the role of digital transformation is playing within healthcare in the US, first of all, and then, you know, what how how does that kind of tie into your mission of, you know, scaling personalization through machine learning and how does that all kind of combust together? Yeah. Yeah. The digital transformation is vital to improving healthcare in the US. That's just to state the obvious, Captain Obvious here. But um it, it starts with the interoperability uh, things that, that we as a healthcare industry are working on, right? Having all the providers, the electronic health records uh, actually accessible to all the players that can influence, you know, keeping track of all the PHI and the privacy laws, giving that access is important. We've all lived through the experience where you go to one doctor, they refer you to another doctor and that doctor in the worst case scenario, they repeat tests that the other doctor already did. That doesn't that happens less and less, I guess. But it still happens, I guess. All right. And then they ask you a whole bunch of questions and you, then you go to a third doctor and it's the same thing, right? The interoperability from a digital standpoint. So the ability through things like the FHIR standard, uh, where we can actually share healthcare information across all the pairs in the system, that that is vital. This wholly, wholly owned subsidiary that I mentioned that we're working with, they are focused on solving that problem. There are a lot of companies uh, in the U.S. that are focused on solving this problem. Uh, and But getting access and bringing all that data together is only the first step, right? Then from a digital transformation, I mean, we still deal, we, we still have a, a pretty small portion of our members who actually are, I would say, really collaborate with us digitally. We still have a lot of analog relationships with our members, either in person or over the phone. I, I'm assuming that's true for, for a lot of other people. I don't know, I don't know exactly that. But when when you can start to interact digitally, if you think of banking, right? I mean, banking's every you can do pretty much everything from your phone. And I, it would be great if from a healthcare perspective we could do that. Um, one of the challenges is how do you, if you're a payer, that's the that's the method with which you pay for your healthcare insurance. The payer, we, we're, that's why we call it the payers. The insurance companies are actually paying the doctors. There's that complexity of claims and all the different contracts. Uh, it's just a lot going on. And so when you look at some of the recent regulation around transparency, right? I mean, now all of the payers have to make public uh, all of their contracts and the pricing that they have with each of the providers in their network. And so when we start to see that, now we're starting to get to the point where if all that pricing from the different payers and the doctors is public, well, then you're you're closer to be able to having the Expedia or Travelocity of, of healthcare. We're, we're not really that close, um, but, but we're taking small steps towards that direction. You know, I see potentially in the future, not just on pricing, but quality measures, right? It would be nice if we had access to the overall quality of doctors and how they're performing, a Yelp for doctors, right? I mean, there are certain solutions like that that are claimed to start to go down that path. But I, I think from a digital transformation, we need to think about a world in which 
there's a pervasiveness or transparency into what's happening. And we, as partners in this industry, start to think and we focus more on building the applications that make it easier for the members to consume healthcare and easier for the doctors to provide healthcare. Uh, that, that is where I see the digital transformation being so important because we are the healthcare industry today. When you think of that, like digital solutions to help customers consume the product or service you're providing and the people within that, that industry to provide it, healthcare is way behind other industries. It, it's really, really far behind. And part of it's just the complexity of, of just what healthcare is, right? I mean, you're, you're trying to keep people healthy. Uh, everybody's has the right intentions. Everybody's all the doctors have taken the Hippocratic oath. They're doing what they think is best, but it's really, really complicated. And you don't, it's hard to operate when you don't have full visibility into what's a particular patient may have done at a different doctor. And so that, that's at a really, really high level. I've probably gone on too long to answer this question, but that, that's kind of where I see it is how do we actually make it easier for all the people in the US to consume healthcare? and leverage all that data and insights, and also at the same time, making it easier for the doctors to provide that care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, an obvious example of that that we've certainly seen here on, on, on this side of the pond, you know, is just actually like times to get seen by doctors you know once upon a time you'd have to call up and you'd be you know number 485 in the queue or <laughs> you know in the, in the line and you have to wait and then you know you've got to book an appointment which is two weeks out and then you've got to drive half an hour and go and sit in a waiting room and all of this type of stuff and um you know since I think it was obviously, you know, trialed through the pandemic because, you know, we couldn't get people in to see doctors if it wasn't a medical emergency. Um, you know, now that's kind of starting to help now, whether the quality of care is any different or not in the digital transformation sphere, that's a, a different story. And that's the kind of stuff that you were touching on there. But um, yeah, we, I think we're certainly heading in the right direction. And I think um, it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds over the next few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, uh, I'm excited for hopefully being a part of it as we, you know, the closer we get to the things we just talked about, the, the better off yeah. we'll all be. So, yeah, perfect. Well, Crystal, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, I appreciate your time. Um, I know you'll have a busy afternoon ahead of you over there on the East coast. So, um, yeah, I'll leave you to it, but we look forward to seeing how your journey unfolds and we'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Hey, Kyle, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to chat with you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. No problem at all. Right. We'll speak soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week.